The Catholic Channel on Sirius XM 129 presents America This Week, a smart Catholic take on faith and culture with Father Matt Malone and Carrie Weber. Good day and welcome to the program. I'm Carrie Weber, Executive Editor for America Magazine. And this is Tim Reedy sitting in for Father Matt Malone. And each week we offer news and analysis from the intersection of the church and the world gathered by our team at America Magazine. And one of our team members is here with us today, Associate Editor Zach Davis. Thanks, Carrie. It's great to be here. We are very glad to have you. You may uh, recognize his voice as one of the hosts of Jesuitical, our podcast for young, hip Catholics. Young, hip, and lay Catholics. Of which you are one. Yes. For all Catholics. (laughs) Reportedly. It's for everybody, I guess. Made by young, hip, and lay Catholics. Allegedly uh, (laughs) hip. So we will move on to the real news of how we are doing, how Catholic schools are doing these days. And here to talk with us about that is Betsy Shirley, who is uh, an editor at Sojourners Magazine and who wrote this article for us. The era of the parochial school is over. Meet the Catholic educators searching for what's next. Betsy, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. We are really glad to have you. Now, uh, as a parent of a almost three-year-old, we have started looking into like Catholic schools, Catholic preschools, Catholic parochial schools for, um, or or Catholic grammar schools for my kids. Uh, and I, one question that I'm constantly thinking about as I look at it is: Is this school going to be around long enough for my kid to graduate from it? And I think uh, some of what your article addresses is is that question, is how these schools are planning for the future. So I wonder if you can tell us a little bit about uh, the thesis here. Well, um, I would say that to your question about, you know, are these schools going to be around? I think the answer is definitely yes, there will be Catholic parochial schools. But the format is going to look a little different. So if up until now, kind of, you've had these parochial or parish schools that have been standalone schools where most of the big decisions were made by a parish pastor, the parish and parochial schools of the future are going to be less standing alone. They're going to be partnering with other schools. They're going to be sharing ideas, resources, best practices, and probably a lot of the big decisions are going to be made by a board of directors rather than just that parish pastor. Now, this is, yeah, I mean, that tradition is one we're all familiar with. We've all seen in the movies. Um, I went to one of those schools. I'm sure many of our listeners did, which is basically you have a pastor and a principal who basically run the school. And Mm -hmm. in many years, as you point out in your piece, that was a real dynamo because it was really education that catered to that community. It didn't have to... It didn't have a larger bureaucracy necessarily to have to to contend with. So in many ways, it was very effective. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. No, I mean, it was... Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. But mm-hmm. now we're moving to a time where we don't have the priest, we don't necessarily have the personnel, and maybe uh, enrollment is down, so there are different challenges now. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, it doesn't mean that model still won't have uh, remnants or traces of that in some of the new models that we're seeing. Um, as you said, there are really strong um, things you can achieve when schools are locally based and have people making decisions who are right there on site. And I think the what they're trying to figure out how to balance right now is how do we balance all of the great things that come from being site-based and managing, you know, okay, we're making decisions for just this school with some of the struggles with resources and needing, um, in some cases, a lot of leadership to get a school to keep moving forward. So, Yeah, I mean, um, just the physical buildings that they have to deal with, which are older now. And that can be a huge responsibility that 
person who's a principal, mm-hmm. that's not why they got it. That's not why they want to be a principal is to manage an old building. Oh, oh my gosh. So um, I have never been a principal. Uh, <laughs> and so when I was chatting with folks and saying, you know, well, give me a picture, um, especially at the beginning, I believe I was talking with uh, Tim uh, Ewell, who's the superintendent of Montana Catholic Schools. And I was saying, well, just paint me a picture here, you know, show me if I were a Catholic school principal today, parochial school, you know, what am I doing? And I'm not sure that I had a really strong, I sort of imagine them maybe sitting in an office, like walking through the halls, chatting with a parent. I don't know what I, in my head, thought that they did, but he was like, well, you know, you first got to make sure, you know, the boiler's working. If that goes wrong, you've got to call somebody. And then, you know, if, if you've got uh, new curriculum standards that need to be implemented, you need to figure out how to do that and then figure out something to do with teacher training. And then you've got parent-teacher conferences and also you've got the bake sale that's coming up and you have to do this, even though it doesn't make a lot of money because the parents really like it. We're just going through all these things. Um, and I was just like, oh, my gosh. Um, uh, and then and by the end, he was, and you're supposed to be providing uh, spiritual leadership. And he was saying, you know, that. It's not that these principals don't want to do those things. It's just tyranny of the urgent. They've got to keep the building from falling apart and, uh, you know, figure out all the different pieces of making a school work. Um, And what they're hoping is that these new models will really can allow principals to move back to some of those education, student and teacher centered tasks. So in the new Um, models, uh, who takes care of the building? Where, how did, how well, is the work divided up, I mean? Um, just just the, the big uh, caution of this whole piece is, of the new models, there are legions. Um, so I uh, hesitate to generalize on any of them. But let's say you're a school that's gone from being, okay, one pastor, uh, one school, making all the decisions with one principal. Let's say you're a school like Partnership Schools uh, New York City, which is, you know, transition to this model where you've got a whole group of schools that are being managed by a, um, uh, a board of directors that is part of a nonprofit that's managing the school. And so that's when you say managed, what, what do you mean managed wise? Well, that's, that's a great question actually, because that word can be kind of slippery. So they're the ones who are going to say, you know what, we do need a new roof, but we could patch it this year, save the money next year, we'll do a full, put on that full new roof. That's not a decision that the principal is having to make anymore in that particular new model. The principal is focused on schools. So when I say managed, um, some people will use the word governance. That's hard too because there's no um, dictionary or glossary of how these words are being used. So you have to be really careful when you're talking to folks. Um, So a lot of the big picture decisions involving Money, uh, strategy, things like sometimes curriculum, uh, you know, should we be using a common core curriculum or not? Um, there are now people who are specialists and they might be making those decisions for a group of schools rather than assuming every school needs its own specialist to figure out, okay, what's going to be the best math curriculum or what's going to be the best, um, you know, science program for our middle schoolers. Well, you mentioned the partnerships program, and which is here in New York. So what they're mm-hmm. responsible for, for example, is they create an academic vision, maintain the buildings, do fundraising, hiring, and finances. So that's that's a big piece of it, which allows the principal to focus mm-hmm. on uh, the development of her teachers, which is the you know should be her number one priority. 
Yeah, absolutely. And what they really want to be doing in a lot of cases. Yep. You know, it's not that they had this great desire to be managers of a very complicated building and system. They wanted to be there uh, working to build better educators. Well, and I imagine they, it helps in in having all the school sort of yoked in a way to um, for like economy of scale, right? Like they could if so, if one person's managing the finances and they they buy something or they could, you know, they have work to do on multiple buildings and may be able to get a better deal with a contractor who can work on many of them, you know, and, and have, have sort of bigger jobs or, you know, just buy, you know, a certain book in bulk um, as well to apply to all the schools, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, that was something that Don Brees, who's the president of Seton Catholic School in Milwaukee, and William Hughes, who's the academic officer at Seton, um, were explaining that, like, you know, you used to have to have an individual school negotiating with, I don't know, yes, the people who send, you know, you big books, the people who send you a new desk, the people who are providing the lunch services, um, and they want just one school go out. And then when you've got a whole group, you've got a lot more power to say, look, we would like to enter into a contract with you for these five schools. Um, can you give us a better deal? We're, you know, and... You've got a lot more negotiating power there. And for fundraising, too. I mean, you're, you've got somebody out there who's fundraising for six or eight schools. A donor's going to see that, oh, their money is supporting a much larger population. Yeah. Um, another thing is that with these schools sharing resources, you have a little more ability to track data um, about, you know, how, how are people doing? How are the students doing? What are the different data points you can say about to really measure um, some of the measurable parts of a school. Right. There's uh, a larger sample size there. Now, how does this relate, this model relate to the individual identity of the schools themselves? You know, do they lose some of that? Do they have a chance to work more deliberately on that? How do they feel um, this about the way it's shaped? Yeah. Um, again, it varies uh, depending on which network or system or partnership or collaborative model you're looking at. Um, I already mentioned Seton Catholic Schools in Milwaukee, but, you know, they had, they really made an intentional effort to say, we want to keep some of that local um, site-based, the individuality of the school, your school name, your school mascot, keep that, um, keep that history, because that's part of what makes Catholic schools special, and we will you know, allow you to kind of figure out that more school culture, um, which I think is what a lot of people really fear losing when they think about, sure. oh, I don't want to be part of a, a network. We have our great traditions in this. Um, the, the other side of that is, yeah, there is uh, a trade-off. So there's a little bit of identity that is sometimes given up. Um, Tim Yule was talking to me and he was saying, you know, every Catholic school thinks they're, you know, unique. And he's like, and in some ways, that's exactly right. You know, they are unique. They have their own history, their identity. But on the other hand, like, they have a lot of the same problems over and over again. You see at each school. And when you do come together, that's something that you can really uh, achieve. Uh, You can solve a lot of problems together. And yeah, you might have a little bit of your own identity you give up. 
Yeah, right. I mean the term paro- the, the term parochial is appropriate here in many ways. I mean, mm-hmm. I remember when our school was uh, like now part of a network with the school north of us, which was like our biggest rival. Which is like, why would you be? <laughs> People like there just was the, like this animosity, and it's like, okay, no, we got to get over that because this is better for the school. Yeah, no, that happened in, the, in my diocese as well. Two of the high schools combined, and everyone was like, no. <laughs> and we're like, no, but this is, it actually means everyone gets to keep going to Catholic schools, you guys. Like, it's still okay. No, but then we can't play football, so right. <laughs> <laughs> we can't play our annual football. Yeah, and, and I mean, the sharks. You, you, have to, you have to recognize that there is an emotional identity, yeah. there is that history, but the larger questions at stake are like, you know, the continuation of a school with the, with the Catholic um, backing and, and being able to, you know, pray in schools and have the, the kind of formation that we hope to have rather than potentially none if the school yep. shut down. Yep. Uh, now, Betsy, we worked together on this article, and I think you know this, but I'm not sure if we actually discussed it. <laughs> when I was first out of college, I worked at Sacred Heart School, which is the lead of your story. I worked there for two years. No, yes, I, I did. Know that. Yeah, I, I did want I guess let you in on my uh, my biases but uh yeah no i worked there i was part of a program that placed uh, graduating uh college seniors in um nonprofit jobs this just happened to be one at a catholic school and so yeah so i'm very familiar with it so i i'm very interested in abigail acano um maybe pronouncing that wrong who's the the lead of your story who's now the principal um and yeah remembering back then certainly that like the our parties were like replacing the playground you know we wanted to get a new playground for the kids but that was totally on the school there was not a lot of support i mean there was alumni who were giving money for it there was fundraising but it wasn't like there was this outside organization who could could do that um and yeah i mean i think the the lesson i took away was that cultivating uh, a sense of the catholic identity among teachers was so important and probably something that they didn't have a ton of time to do. And given that they don't pay a lot, and given that Catholic identity is so important, that's got to be a priority. So I'm very happy to hear that things are seem to be uh, progressing at Sacred Heart. So maybe you can introduce us to the school and to the principal. Yeah, so Sacred Heart um, was kind of your typical uh, Catholic parish school. It's located in High Bridge, neighborhood of the Bronx. Um there's a lot of interesting history of different various buildings, but it was built by a community there. They kind of had a smaller building, built a new one, um, and it existed there for a long time. And over time, um, that neighborhood became, well, it's part of the poorest congressional district in the United States, uh, pretty low median uh, income for folks, a lot of kids with their families with kids live in poverty. Um, and so this Catholic school has wanted to exist, be a school for the neighborhood. Um, it still has a lot of the, the people it draws are from the neighborhood there. It's local. Um, but affordability of a Catholic school has been really hard. And at the same time that it's getting harder for families to afford Catholic education who really want to send their kid there, um, as you said, that they're hiring teachers. A lot of those teachers are no longer um, sisters from uh, orders that teach. These are now, you know, younger folks right out of college or teachers who are teaching them because they really want to, um, but they're having to be paid a salary. Um, and so that's creating a huge expense for um, schools like Sacred Heart. Whereas nuns in the past were not paid a salary, so that affects the bottom line a lot, right? Right. Usually they were given like, okay, here's a here's a place to live. Usually there was like a building kind of, you know, a block or half a block away where this is where all the, the teachers lived. But um, 
yeah, so that created a whole new expense in addition to everything else that's changing about how the school right. run. And that's still at Sacred Heart. I believe the convent is still on the ground. It's used for something else now, but mm-hmm. it's really, yeah, old school. Yeah, there would be an interesting way someone could do, you know, like a history of Catholic schools just by kind of the architecture of what you could yeah, go around yeah, and, see yeah. and be like, what, what did they used to use this building for? Why was this here? <laughs> um, so... Um, and then, yeah, Abigail Cano, so she'd been at Sacred Heart for 10 years and kind of worked her way up as a, as a teacher. Um, I, I believe she was a math teacher, though. Uh, maybe don't quote me on that. And then assistant principal and was eventually asked to become the principal. And it was a hard decision for her because she knew she was going to be spending all of her time in an office dealing with paperwork. Um, I wasn't able to put it in the story, but she, you know, talked in a lot of detail about, you know, different there's just a lot of paperwork principles or somebody needs to do about, you know, how many students do you have? How many students of this ethnicity? How many people at this grade level? What's the reading level? Um, and, and she she described literally, you know, having to go around classroom by classroom and sort of being like, okay, what have we got in this room? Okay, and then having to go through this huge, um, uh, you know, data that she was trying to collect. And that was how she was spending her time rather than, you know, really interacting with teachers or planning, like, okay, how can we really talk about our identity as a Catholic school? Um, and so, uh, oh, I'm not quite remembering the year, but um, Sacred Heart became part of partnership schools. And that's when a lot of their big dis- picture decision-making, all of the building management, all of the decisions about um, what curriculum should we use, kind of got kicked up to... Uh, the folks who run partnership schools, and that leaves Abigail Cano able to interact more with teachers and to spend her time um, doing development and less on leaky buildings, fundraisers, and all kinds of other stuff that was formerly taken up for time. Yeah, it gets to the heart of Pope Francis is always talking about sort of see the person, see the person, and it allows the educators to you know really see the students, see each other as as teachers, and be a, a team in that. I would imagine in a way that. Uh, you can't if everyone's pulled in so many different directions. Yeah, no, totally. I, I would say. Um, now, in, I think, oh, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. I was going to say, and I think it's been a really positive change, not without, um, you know, it's a little more complicated. It's not like, okay, if there is a leaky, a leaky bathroom, if before she could be the one to fix it or call someone to fix it, rather, um, you know, now it's like, okay, I need to call the central office and have them do that. So it's not like it's, you know, um, it's just a little more complicated, but it right. also frees her up. There might There's be another yeah. layer there to to go through, but in the end, probably saves her time overall. Now, what about the the schools in Nashville that you mentioned? The Jubilee schools are something that you write about in this article, and it's an example of uh, a experiment in education that didn't wasn't as successful. Yeah, and and I'll be upfront. There's a lot um, there that's still not quite known about exactly why. Um, they failed. And and actually, at the time when I was working on this story, the whole kind of Diocese of Memphis was going through a lot of transition um, with their their bishop being removed. So um, I had originally, when I started working on this story, you know, I'd come across numerous references to Jubilee schools in Memphis and thought, you know, wow, that'd be a really, uh, really great, um, you know, place to kind of do some reporting from and to talk about, it was kind of an early adapter of one of these new models and to talk about, you know, how they've grown and changed. And so I put it on my list. And then um, when I was still doing research and came back to it and 
you know, kind of Googled it. And the first thing that popped up was, you know, Memphis school uh, set to, or, well, Memphis's Jubilee Catholic school set to close, you know, at the end of this coming school year, um, which was a very, you could tell by the number of uh, responses on this, you know, local uh, reported piece that people were really upset um, and surprised, I think, um, hadn't realized that this was something that could happen. And over over time, a, a group of non, a nonprofit was formed and said, okay, we're going to convert these schools into charter schools. Um, and charter schools will not be Catholic. Maybe they'll have some like after school kind of Catholic education, but they'll continue to provide schools for the neighborhood, but they won't be Catholic anymore. Um, and so that was, that was a pretty, um, a pretty big blow in the Catholic education world. Right. You have, you quote, I think Jill Kafka here, head of partnership schools, that for her, it was kind of a call uh, to remind sustainability how important that is, that these schools, that they can, you know, raise the money and, you know, support themselves. Um, that's huge because otherwise they can be vulnerable to, you know, a decision sometimes of just one person of the bishop who said, OK, I'm going to end this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and so when when Jubilee Schools was first formed, um, they're named Jubilee Schools because they were formed uh in 2000, Church's Jubilee year, um, a lot of what allowed them to be formed was a very large uh, endowment from a group of anonymous donors. Fun fact, uh, the donors were not Catholic. They were people of faith. They are still anonymous, but um, the founder of those schools said that they, um, which I just thought was so interesting, that you have these people giving a lot of money because they recognize the value of Catholic schools, but they themselves are not Catholic. They just thought this would be really good for Memphis. Hmm. Um, anyway, um, but we still don't know who they are, which is just interesting. So we, we um, are, Go ahead, Betsy. Oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, so we're talking to Betsy Shirley again about her article, The Era of the Parochial School is Over. And uh, you did a lot of research into the, you, you've mentioned a few different models of what Catholic schools could look like now. But I think in general, I got the sense from the article that it, there is like a spirit of experimentation that's going on in uh, U.S. Mm-hmm. Catholic schools. Is is that the zeitgeist right now? Or is there still a lot of resistance to adapting to a, a new model that needs to be found? Well, you know, I'm sure if you went and just pulled people in Catholic education writ large, there would still be um, some resistance. I was specifically looking for the people who were interested in some of these new models and excited about them. Um, so, and I think there is, with anything, a reluctance to change kind of the sphere that you're losing the essence. But yeah, I would say it's an era of experimentation and it's changing. It actually made it kind of tricky. Um to write the story, and, and I'm sure even now where I'm starting over again, there might be new developments. Um, and what I mean by that is that, you know, you have these schools that are like, okay, we used to be governed by a, you know, just one pastor, and we were kind of more independent, and now we're going to join a network. What we're seeing in some of these models, um, some of those schools that have joined a network have now kind of stabilized, and they are starting to say, you know, we'd actually like a little more uh, site-based management now, um, and bylaws are changing of you know who makes what decisions where. So, um, so it's a moving a target. Of, yeah, yeah, it's a moving target, and you know needs change too. Um, the thing that I thought was really cool about that is that, uh, in a way, that is itself that 
era of experimentation is just as much a part of the tradition of Catholic education in the U.S. as what we know of parish schools. It's always been, in, in some ways, you know, a, okay, what's working right now? What are the challenges we face? How can we shape schools to make that? Um, right. You mentioned that we like to think that this has been the model forever, but it's actually rooted in a very specific and, I mean, fairly recent point in history, yeah? Yeah. No, uh, right around the 1800s, you've got all this, um, a lot of immigrants coming into the U.S., and there is a lot of uh, anti-Catholicism, and you have these uh bishops kind of saying, what are we going to do to prevent our, our Catholic children from going into these schools where um, the schools themselves were not really trying to hide it, but were really trying to make all their young students into young Protestants. And so you start seeing this real pickup in, okay, look, we've got to form schools, we've got to form schools. And, but what that, what that looked like, it wasn't like we've got to form schools, they created the parish model as we know it today. And Thus, it has been, you know, since then. There was a lot of a lot of models that maybe we don't remember today, um, but that were kind of part of this, like, oh, what if we tried this? And I was like, oh, that worked for a bit. And then, oh, it didn't. And then we tried something else. Yeah, I mean, these were some incredibly creative people, you know, entrepreneurial people who, who created these models to start with. And it's encouraging to see there, there are still people like that kind of trying to find new models for today that serve the population today. So uh, it's in many ways, it's a hopeful story. Yeah, no, I mean... I hope folks read it as a hopeful story. I know, you know, maybe the headline feels a little dramatic. But, um, <laughs> You're welcome. Uh, <laughs> but that's good. I feel like that if that gets interest in it. Um, it. And it's very much in line with what Catholic education has been. Right now, it's just like an era where we're like, okay, there's not quite the model that we've had is, is working. So we're going to need to shift some things around. And the exciting thing is that there are a lot of different people trying different things. Indeed. um, Thank you so much, Betsy. We're out of time, but you can read more about Betsy's article. The era of parochial school is uh, the parochial schools over meet the Catholic educator searching for what's next at americamagazine.org slash serious. Thanks again, Betsy. We're really glad to have you. You can follow us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, etc. For Tim Reedy and Zach Davis and myself, have a wonderful day. Thanks for listening. Listening to the Catholic Channel, Sirius XM 129.